Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and Mazel Tov. Mazel Tov. I'm not sure if you noticed, but a few weeks ago, a newsmaker arrived on our local soil. Their arrival wasn't met with uh, paparazzi, but with protests and lawsuits and boycott threats and the like. So clearly I'm not talking about Lady Gaga. The person was Steve Bannon. In case you've been living on a Trappist monastery or a Buddhist colony suspended off a Himalayan cliff, these past two years, I'll tell you who he is. In August 2016, when Donald Trump's candidacy for the presidency was veering off the rails, Steve Bannon was brought aboard. He quickly took hold, and the rest is now history. Bannon himself has a complicated past. He's a formal naval officer, then an investment banker at Goldman Sachs, then an ultra-hard right-wing media owner, and then a chief White House strategist. And he was in Toronto to debate the Canadian-born but now leading American conservative thinker and writer David Frum. The question on the table at the Monk debate was the future of the Western world. Would it be liberal democracy or populism? If you've seen it already, and if you haven't, it's online and you should. You'll see that Bannon tries to explain that his populism is not like the populist regimes of 1930 Germany or Italy or Japan. It's not like, he says, the national movements of today seen in Poland, Russia, or Hungary that is right both with tribalism and racism. He said that his movement is economic populism. Meaning that Steve Bannon's American populism, and by extension Donald Trump's, and by extension the Republican Party's, is said not to care if you're white or you're black or you're brown or yellow. It's supposed to be indifferent if you're Christian or Catholic or Protestant, Muslim or Jew. It only cares that you're a legal American citizen. And that this economic populism cares that these people are the ones that have employment and income, not Canadians and not Mexicans or people living in Guam. Now that's what he says. The reality, well, that's debatable. You see, Bannon cut his teeth on the far alt-right of the American culture, which means that his media company trafficked with white supremacists and racists and anti-Semites and nationalists. His life after the White House has seen him consulting for the hard-right political parties in Europe. But let's be generous. After all, it's Noah's bat mitzvah. So let's be generous and say that Steve Bannon actually believes what he is saying. And let's be generous to say that the economic populism that he advocates is born from middle-class America being left economically behind. And that this economic populism is only about financial anger and nothing else. But I'm just back from a trip to Germany and I have something to say about anger in societies. I repeated to my group many times over the five days that we spent there together, being there is complicated. 
I told my Italian neighbor, we went to Berlin, and she said, oh, how nice. You must have had a wonderful time. I told the congregant that we went to Berlin, and she leaned and whispered, really, how did you find it? Because Jews don't go to Europe simply. Where once great homes and businesses were in Jewish hands, where within blocks there was a universe of genius and faith and commerce and community. We now see museums and we chase ghosts. And those ghosts are everywhere. I once read that Vienna had a hundred synagogues before the Second World War, and today only one survives. It couldn't be burned by the Nazis because it had been built beneath a government archive. At the concentration camp Theresienstadt, there is a small museum there that holds art and music and even some of the literature that Jews produce during the war and that survived it. But just a short walk from that museum is a small river where the ashes of 22,000 Jews were murdered and they were dumped there during the war. Heinrich Heine, the, Jewish, the German Jewish philosopher, once said that there could be no Germany without Jews. So nothing in Europe can evoke uncomplicated love for Jews. Berlin and Vienna aren't a collection of third world cultures. Germany was not a third-rate country on some backwater continent. Germany was the epicenter of music and art and literature, culture and philosophy, and the hopes of liberal democracy in the 20th century. There, they celebrated and revered Schubert, and Mozart played his greatest works. Buchenwald is named for the oak tree where the poet Goethe wrote his greatest works. And a hundred years later, it became a death camp. The cafes are where Freud and Mahler, Einstein and Schoenberg, Jung and Mann, that they sat and talked. So anyone with a soul and heart who walks through Germany, they all ask the same question. How could this have happened here in all places? When the National Socialists, when the Nazis took control of the German government in 1933, and began purging Jews from their midst. Carpenters and teachers were as likely to save a Jew as a laureate poet or a philosophy professor would turn them in. Because there isn't a university degree in the world that can inoculate you from bigotry, racism, and hatred. Which is to say that in Germany we learn what was true then is very true now. That once anger is given permission, as soon as we litter our public discourse with anger and not thought, it becomes impossible to control. And then it is impossible to turn off. Because anger's oxygen needs a target. So once you're angry, you need to figure out what you're angry at. The migrants? The Jews? Mr. Bannon says the anger is only about economics. But if history is any map, who can say that is where it will end? The hard truth is that societies continually stew in anger and hate. There are a never-ending parade of resentments all the time of those who have and those who want, of those who have lost and those who have found, of those who feel threatened and those who want in, of those who want nothing to change and those who dream of it. And beware of the politician who stokes not our collective virtues, 
But our collective anger, and there are plenty of them, Germany's lesson is that all it takes is one with the right skill at the right moment to light the match and bring it all down. But I don't want to only talk about Steve Bannon in Germany. I want to talk about us. We all have our resentments of people who have let us down, of people who have hurt us, of the wrongs and slights from the past that we never let die. And I often think of all the things that I don't see and that I don't feel because of the anger and resentment and the feeling of being wrong and what it leaves with us. The truth is, walking through Germany, I deeply felt how damaged a place it is because if they've seen that abyss. And I walked away asking myself the question I want to share with you this morning. If anger is the poison, what lesson can we learn? What can I learn from it to make my life better? What can I share with you so that you can too? The answers will come. But first, please rise as we continue with prayer and music on page 368. And I, I have to give you the answer. It's a question about anger, both in ourselves and in the places where we live. So I have two stories to tell you. And you might think that one is the answer to only one and the other is the answer to the second. But the truth of the matter is, hopefully, when you think about it, you realize that both of the stories are answer to all of the things. You could apply them to both situations equally. So in the ancient world, there were no mirrors. People didn't have mirrors. So people would go days, months, years with never seeing their image unless they looked inside at a pool of water that was still, and maybe they caught a glimpse of themselves, unlike us, where we see images of ourselves hundreds of times a day. And some of you, maybe even thousands. <laughs> Pictures and mirrors and selfies, you name it. And so you can imagine that in the story that we read this morning, the Torah portion, about Jacob who leaves home under painful and spurious circumstances to the point he leaves home because his brother Esau, Esau, wants to kill him because he took something from him of great importance. And this morning Jacob returns home decades later and he hears that his brother is coming with, at him with hundreds of armed men. And Jacob wonders if he can survive this. And at the moment of their meeting, we find that they approach themselves. And Jacob and Esau were twins, but they were not identical twins. And as they look to each other, Jacob sees his brother approaching him. And the answer to the question about anger for us is found in the idea of how Jacob approaches. As they draw close, and Jacob looks to divine whether or not his brother's intentions, what they may or may not be. Jacob first looks in his brother's eyes and he sees a stranger. And then he looks again and he sees a brother. And then he looks again and he sees himself. Whenever we look at somebody, that's exactly what we see. The first glance is a stranger. And then it's a, and then it's a brother. And then if we look closely enough, you see yourself. 
The truth of the matter is we are not by nature divine to love each other. Go to any playground. You know when a new kid shows up, you think all the other kids turn around at the playground and say, oh, look, there's a new kid, let's love him. They don't. But we are not called to live by our nature. We are called to live by our virtues. That's what we're here for, to live better. Now, the second story I have for you is regarding a traveling minstrel rabbi named Shlomo Karabach. Karabach was born in a DP camp after the war. He had lost most of his family. And most of his career he spent wandering through the Jewish world playing concert. But there was one concert in particular that he never ever stopped playing at. It was an annual Jewish music revival concert in Krakow. Which also happens to be the largest Jewish music revival concert in the world. When I was a rabbi for the uh, Toronto March of the Living Delegate, we came to Krakow. And the buses usually pass by, most notably in Krakow, the enamel works of Oscar Schindler. Sometimes the buses even stop and the kids go take a look. But when, when we made our way to the old city center of the Jewish quarter, I called all the kids over to me. And I told them this story about Rabbi Karbach. People asked him why he would go back to Krakow. He had lost all of his family there. The entire Jewish community had been wiped out. They said, how could you go there? You of all people, to those, they who killed and murdered us. And Karabakh turned to the person and said, if God had given me two hearts, I would devote one full time to hating them. But God didn't. I only have one. So I won't waste it on hate. That's the answer. What are you going to make the use of your time with? The next prayer is the Sim Shalom. And according to one tradition, the original words of the Sim Shalom were, Sim Shalom Ba'ulam. We ask God to bring peace into our world. Shabbat Shalom.